Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Bueno. I'm a psychotherapist, teacher, consultant, and most importantly, a wounded healer, living and working in Chicago, Illinois. And I'm your host, Anne Remy. I'm a counseling psychotherapist, yoga teacher, and trauma specialist living in Brighton, UK. On this show, we interview folks in a variety of healing professions, and we discuss the intersectional journey of healing self while caring for others. But we're not just focused on individual healing, but also healing on the collective level, from white supremacy, late-stage capitalism, and the patriarchy. Thanks for joining us. I'm done making faces at you. (laughs) Welcome. Hi, everyone. What's up? How are you? I am having back pain today, but other than that, I will survive. As the song says, you will indeed survive. First, I was afraid, but I will survive. You will survive. And speaking (laughs) of I will survive, classic anthem, it is Pride Week in Brighton. And so we just want to say happy Pride to everyone who celebrates, which is all of Brighton, because Brighton is (laughs) probably the queerest town in the UK if not in all of Europe. So we're very excited to be celebrating. Yay. And if you're in the U.S., that's just another excuse for more pride. Yeah. Who's mad at it? So happy pride again. Happy pride again. You know what else I'm proud of? What? Our merch. How was that? What a segue. segue. Look at you. I know. I'm getting so good at it. (laughs) Did you know you can support our podcast by purchasing some of our incredible merch? which is at tinyurl.com slash cwhmerch. That's tinyurl.com slash cwhmerch. You can also rate and review us and show us your pride for our podcast. I know. I'm so good. I'm getting so good at it. (laughs) Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash convos with a wounded healer. That's patreon.com slash convos with a wounded healer and if you support us on patreon in the u.s sarah will send you a gift i will if you support us in the uk i will send you a gift and you know what yes we need somebody to rate and review the podcast and mention you i mean that would be great yeah i would love that yeah i know somebody say something about me somebody say something Feed my very delicate (laughs) ego. (laughs) Well, and it's funny that I guess if your mom thinks we sound the same. Last night, I was listening to the podcast we're going to be talking about today. And Rich said, oh, is that you? So if you can't tell the difference between us, then it's even better. Even your husband. Right. Even your husband. Right. So apparently we sound the same. I don't think so, I don't but think okay. So either, but uh, you know, <laughs> that's all right. It's all right. Let's talk about today's episode. Let us indeed. Yeah. I'm really excited to share this when you know when we started, I know I keep saying this, but Neha's one of the first people that I wanted to reach out to to be on the podcast. So, we're still cycling through a lot of the like this is definitely someone I had to reach out to. Mhm. So I was really excited to interview her and and for her to be able to bring her British history and her Indian history mm-hmm. and the combination of those two things, which is always very problematic and difficult. Yeah. Yeah. It was really interesting because, I mean, of course, being in America, we don't learn anything about other countries, yeah. really. And so to hear about the the racism that's specifically flavored in the British way was fascinatingly awful. Or unflavored as British food goes. (laughs) Right, right. I was trying to think of how to say that in the right way and I did it. Yes, you are correct. Unflavored. And it is interesting. It it made me think of my best friend from high school, Rakesh Satyal. And I'm sure he doesn't listen to this, but he was one of my best friends growing up. Like we met in middle school in show choir and he was, I mean, it, we were such a white town mm. in Fairfield, Ohio. And so he was one of the few people of color. And I never, it's weird just thinking of how I perceived him at that time, knowing nothing about the existence of racism mm. or anything about any other cultures other than what it means to just be white from Ohio. And I remember 
because she Neha talks about like being afraid of smelling like onions mm-hmm. or garlic and that's exactly what Rakesh smelled like and sometimes he would get made fun of for that and we all made fun of his mom's accent and just how I can't even imagine and I've apologized to him since and of course he was like girl you didn't know any better nobody knew any better back mm-hmm. then like I knew you loved me and it was all in good fun, whatever, but still just the experience of being so very othered and not wanting to be different Mm -hmm. was, yeah, like tragically beautiful to hear of that experience from her and, and then try to put my, myself in the shoes of my friend that I grew up with. Well, and one of the things that Neha and I talked about and I've talked about with some other friends of mine in the UK is that this conversation doesn't have as much of a template in the UK as it has in the US. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, you know, Neha talks about the sort of obedient immigrant. This yeah. y- you have to assimilate. And even I being a white American in the UK feel that pressure. Mm-hmm. Right. And interesting. And if I'm a white American in the UK who feels that pressure to sort of assimilate into British culture, which is a lot less loud, (laughs) expressive, expressive. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I can't imagine what other people go through who, you know, especially with the layers of racism and, and different layers of bigotry and homophobia and, you know, not being deemed as an, a, a quote unquote acceptable immigrant. Right. And yeah, so I I think hearing her talk about that was really incredible as she starts to share her story more. And what was amazing, I don't know if you watch Black Mirror, but not long after Neha and I recorded this podcast, the new season of Black Mirror came out and the last episode. Oh, I haven't watched the last one yet. So it's it starts with the story. It's set in the 1979 because that's part of the title of the episode. And it's, uh, I can't remember if she's Indian or Pakistani, woman in the UK. Hmm. And her coworkers are being really shitty towards her. They're making fun of her for her food. And and I was like, holy shit, Neha and I just had this conversation. And, you know, we were talking about how it's an experience that so many people here in the UK have had not everyone has shared that. And I messaged her and I was like, oh my God, you have to watch this episode. Like, yeah, your story is not your specific story, but this story is being told on a, one of the biggest stages it can be told on. And I was so excited. Yeah. So excited that a whole generation Mm. of people are, are being seen. Mm-hmm. And how healing is that? Well, I can only imagine the episode takes a dark turn after the beginning of it. But, you know, the, the first part of it, I was like, holy shit, like this is exactly what we were just talking about. So, yeah, it just it, it really hammered home for me how important telling stories is. Right. Representation matters. Representation matters. And, mm-hmm. I, and you know, I think Neha herself has told me the more I tell my story, the freer I get. And it's something that she's she's beginning to do more. So I love that we were able to bring yeah. her onto the show and to give her a platform to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So without further ado, shall I read Neha's bio and introduce yeah, her? Yeah, do it. Neha Patel Hampton is so many things. With over 20 years experience in corporate hospitality and charity settings, She now fights for social justice through her work with organizations who help to improve the lives of those who migrate and fight racial and gender inequality. Topped off with a heartfelt sprinkling of food and yoga as her way of bringing people together. Amazing. Amazing. So enjoy my conversation with Neha. Neha, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Hello, hello. Lovely to be here. I'm so happy to have you on. And it feels like a really good time to have you on. Just because of all the things you've been doing and all the connections that you and I have had recently. So one question that Sarah and I are now asking, well, I'm asking British guests through Sarah's request. Are you team cheese toasty or are you team grilled cheese? I am firmly team cheese toasty. Okay. I grew up with a, you know, there's like Breville sandwich toasters that create this perfectly like crimped triangle sandwiches. Yeah. 
So we would call that like yeah. a panini machine. Yeah. So we, yeah. we used to have a Breville machine and obviously there was cheese, but there was also all sorts of spicy goodness going on in there as well. So for me, it's a cheese toasty, but always with something spicy. So if it's not fresh chilies, it's kimchi. If it's not kimchi, cheese and kimchi, by the way, <laughs> this could be a revelation for all of our listeners. <laughs> I just heard every, <laughs> I just heard my Korean stepfather go, <laughs> all right. Okay. So cheese toasty, but cheese and kimchi or cheese and something spicy. Always. Got it. Perfect. Love that. Neha, I'm going to let you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're doing. Thank you. So my name's Neha Patelhampton. I'm the daughter of immigrant parents from Gujarat in India. I grew up here in the UK, and so this is the place that I call home. I've had a very varied life and a career. After 18 years working in big business, I transitioned to working with food and yoga, two of my life passions. And that was about five years ago. And for me, my passion for food was just an instant choice for a drastic career change. And I found as I embarked on the culinary journey, food itself is such an incredible platform for driving change, for educating people. And over the last couple of years, what with COVID and the lockdowns that we all went through, I found myself actually reconnecting to my cultural heritage in a way that I hadn't before. And a lot of that was done through that kind of realization of one's difference, but also just about learning and relearning the history of my people. And through that, over the last couple of years, I've actually started to work with a number of different charities and organizations who are fighting gender and racial inequality, fighting for social change. And so my relationship with food is now really firmly set with my desire to drive change. And so in the past, I would have said yes to every opportunity that came my way, be it a pop-up supper club, a private dining event, a retreat. And now I'm being quite meaningful about how I'm using food as a way to, as a way to educate people, as a way to bring people together, but most importantly, as a way to remind us of our shared humanity. I love that. A way to remind us of our shared humanity. That's so beautiful because one of the things that you and I have in common is our love of food and our love of providing food for others and using it to tell a story. And I think the stories we tell through food are so important. And I'm really curious to hear about your story with food. It's a long and winding road. So as I said, I was born here in the UK. My parents are first-generation immigrants, and my father was born in East Africa. My grandfather was uprooted and rerouted into indentured servitude to East Africa in Tanzania. And my mother was born in India. So both of my parents are Gujarati, but had quite different childhoods and quite different upbringings. The journey of coming to the UK is quite extraordinary, and we can touch upon that later. What's really fascinating for me is that my parents' journey started here in the UK. My dad had a incredible journey from Tanzania and back to India, then to Zambia, then to Kenya, finally coming to the UK in the early 70s. His marriage to my mum was in the later part of the 70s through an arranged marriage. So she joined him in 1978 and both my sister and I were born here in the UK and being that kind of, I don't think we were the first wave because the the actual, the start of the migration of South Asians to the UK happened probably 10, 15 years earlier after the First World War, given that both India and East Africa were colonies at the time, the citizens of those countries were still considered as British subjects. And so many of them traveled here with British passports in hand, as did my father. The interesting part of growing up in England in the late 70s, early 80s, is that it was a time when curry was deemed the favourite dish of the nation. But it was also a time when the National Front and the EDL were marching up and down the country, protesting against people like us. So it was complex. And I, that's just the backdrop in terms of what we kind of started with. Now, my mum is the most incredible cook. 
she's famous in her family. Actually, I hear still hear stories of her when she's growing up in India. She grew up in a really small village in Gujarat. And my uncles, my two, my two mamas, my mum's two brothers would eat like 20 or 30 chapatis on every meal sitting. And my mum would be sitting there frantically rolling and cooking and rolling and cooking. <laughs> and they would they would only want hot chapatis as well. So you couldn't make them in advance. So there would be the, all the women cooking whilst the men ate and then the women ate afterwards. And that was kind of part mm. of the upbringing she had. Now in India, food is obviously very, very traditional and seasonal. And by traditional, I mean, there's not a lot of import into the rural parts of India. So really what they eat is what they grow and what they have in front of them. Mm. So I never thought about that, actually. Mm. If you think about the UK now and today, as we know it, you can get literally every ingredient under the sun. You can get the the subpar ingredients because... They keep the best ones they for keep themselves. The best ones for themselves. This, is, um, <laughs> this is an issue we're having in the UK at the moment is after Brexit, we're struggling. There was like a whole two weeks where there were no tomatoes or cucumbers anywhere. And the whole country was in a panic about tomatoes and cucumbers. And they tried to pass it off as what, like there was a farming issue or something in Southern Europe. Meanwhile, Southern Europe had all the tomatoes and cucumbers they wanted. So that's what happens when you separate yourself from... The rest of Europe. <laughs> oh, mate. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And we're like, we couldn't be any more of a small island right now, couldn't we? In the in ways we've created ourselves. So, Mum grew up with quite traditional, very, very kind of seasonal culinary upbringing. So when she came here, there was nothing available that she recognised, and it's that then that food starts to evolve and change. And so. Some of my early memories include uh, my mum making really traditional dishes mm-hmm. with alternative ingredients. So the introduction of things like cauliflowers and cabbages and mm-hmm. peas and stuff entered into our diet. Not because, and those things might have been available in India and, and actually are today because they're grown there. But at the time, there were no raw mangoes to make pickles. So my mum used to make pickles out of like carrots and cucumbers yeah. and you'd have to eat them really quickly because obviously they wouldn't keep. And so food, Indian food for South Asians when they first came here had to change quite significantly mm. because it always became about what was available. Every time we had a relative come over from India or every time one of us went to India, that suitcase would be packed with Cadbury's <laughs> chocolate on the way over and then packed with spices on the way back. And so there was this kind of like just a natural kind of familial migration of ingredients going between the two countries. My childhood is, the early years of my childhood are filled with some of the most glorious memories. Are you familiar with the famous Alfonso mango? Not that specific type of mango. It is the king of mangoes, queen. Let's Let's call call her her the queen. queen, actually. Let's call her the queen. She's the queen of mangoes. She grows for one month of the year in a specific part of India. And she is the most ridiculously juicy, fragrant, dark orange colored mango that you will ever come across in your life. South Asians obviously missed mangoes. And so one week of the year, there would be a trip to London. Generally, in my childhood, we would go to London three, four times a year to either Tooting or Wembley, where there were like a little a range of Indian shops that sold all of the ingredients that we needed. And we would buy like four boxes <sighs> of Alfonso mangoes. And for a week, we would truly sit and eat mangoes for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And some of my fondest memories are being put on the floor with a bed sheet with the mango skins and the pulp and just <laughs> literally gorging on mangoes. mangoes have such a special place in my heart a because actually one of the first times i went to india i stayed on a mango farm and they were like yeah you can just wander around and pull them off the trees and eat them and i was like i can what and when i lived in taiwan (laughs) the woman who ran the fruit stand across from my house when i would come down every morning she would just hand me the nicest mango she had and it became like a a bonding she didn't speak any english so it became a bonding thing between her and i and also, like, my best breakfast every day was just this ridiculous, juicy mango. So I love hearing you talk about 
this. And I, I love what just happened right there is I'm, you know, I'm talking about a memory of mine and it evokes a memory of yours. And yeah. these stories really matter, actually, because they're part of our history. They're part of our kind of cultural heritage. And whether you learn them through traveling or whether you learn or you gain these memories through your own childhoods, this is the magic that food has. It has the ability to bring people together because we share things. And yeah. mangoes is just a lovely example. But yeah, my childhood filled with Alfonso mangoes. And by the way, every year I am gifted a box of Alfonso mangoes from my mom. <laughs> Doesn't matter where I am, where I live. Every year there is a box that turns up at my house and I do the same process of gorging on mangoes. They just happen to be like a hundred times more expensive now. I mean, I'm talking three pound a mango oh and I get a box of 12. So, you know, these are the these are the most delicious, but also the most expensive mangoes. Yeah, sure. The other memory that I'd share in my childhood is we have, I think in English, they're called poppadoms, but those kind of like yeah. dried lentil crisp things that you kind of, you could on Every hot, really hot summer's day, like the 30 degree days, which happen twice a year in the UK. So 30 degrees for American listeners is probably around 80, between 80 and 85. Which is actually not even that no, hot for America. It is not, no, it's not, it's not that hot. <laughs> but that's the hottest that we're likely to get <laughs> And everyone thinks they're dying. <laughs> it gets that hot (laughs) we have no air conditioning and no ice machines though so in a lot of ways we're just not set up for the hot weather no when I'm a kid though we would have all of my mum's friends and aunties would come together on the hot day it would be very very impromptu on the stove there would be vats and vats of lentil dough steaming which would then be rolled out to like literally see-through like texture and then bed sheets out on the lawn we would dry them in the sun oh. and they would be the kids it would be us running back and forth turning them over little gust of wind would blow them away and would come and have to rearrange them back out again so a lot of those kind of really precious Indian moments came with my parents yeah. actually and even things like my first experiences I remember being four or five years old standing on a stool rolling my first chapati and that in itself is like still embedded in as one of my earliest and most precious memories. We used to have to roll and eat our own. So really, the worse we were, the better we got because they just tasted all doughy and not particularly nice. So <laughs> the, the best way to teach someone how to cook something is make them eat what they cook. Yeah, because they're going to keep practicing and keep and we did it, you know, obviously, food was a huge part of our childhood. Mm. My relationship with food becomes complicated as I get older. I think it's, it's very fair to say that when you're very young, you don't understand difference. Mm. And so I have a really Indian home. We speak Gujarati only, Mm -hmm. we eat Indian food only. And, you know, by by the time I'm four or five, my grandparents have joined us as well. So we live in this bubble and we don't integrate with like Western society. Indian families tend to keep themselves to themselves. And I grew up in a a very white conservative town on the south coast of England. Mm. We were one of, when I was very young, we were one of two Indian families Mm. in the whole town. Now, in my home, I felt safe and in terms of my identity, I, I knew who I was. Mm-hmm. The moment I started school, yeah. I realized I wasn't the same as everybody else. Yeah. And those kind of like, I guess the easiest way to say it is polite, kind racism that I in, in, endured at school was just othering. It was the constant reminder of you don't belong here. You're different. You mm. smell different. We don't want you to come to our house for parties or play dates. And so we started to feel the difference. And actually, if I think back in hindsight, I actually yo-yoed between my two lives pretty well. Mm. I did everything I could to fit in at school mm. and I did everything I could to be a good daughter at home. But it's a real conflict. Yeah. And the conflict really starts when those two identities become difficult to maintain and for me the desire to fit in took over mm-hmm. and I think that's really normal actually for a young person yeah. I mean I'm reflecting back on like pre the age of 10 um, and so pre the age of 10 I was just so desperate to fit in that I would have literally agreed to do anything that anyone asked of me and I think that's still something I'm working through now, that desire to belong, that mm. desire to fit in, the kind of constant need to kind of please people. And that comes from a time where who I was was not something I could share with the world mm. because it made me different and I didn't want to be. 
It's so interesting because you and I have talked about this before. And one of the things I've thought about is how how much I hear this conversation in the United States about code switching, about having to fit in in different spaces and, and the stress that that puts on marginalized groups. But I don't hear that same conversation in the UK. And quite often when I talk to people and people who have stories very similar to yours, they don't realize that they're not alone in that experience because these conversations mm. don't happen on a larger scale. I think it's it's very indicative of the way that racism is looked at in the UK in this like, oh, let's just put it under the carpet. Let's not ever talk about it. Nope, nope. Everything is fine. Everything is fine. And but it doesn't give marginalized groups, people of color, the space to to not feel different. And I think you touch on something really important here. Have you heard the term obedient migrant? No. I came across it and I can't even quote who said it. Um, the term really stuck with me. I think that the colonial, post-colonial societies like mm. the Indians, the Pakistanis, the Bangladeshis, and many, many others learn, and particularly the South Asians, and I speak from experience, is that they almost developed what I would call a subservient identity. It was that when you live in a colonized country for you know mm -hmm. hundreds of years and you are treated like second third fourth class citizens mm -hmm. in your own country yeah there's a part of you that learns to keep your head down and fit in and the obedient migrant comment that I put in there is because South Asians are just so spectacularly good at not mm. saying all the things that are wrong and you said that you don't hear it here I don't hear it in my own family in this country. Wow. I think that my, my own exploration with my identity, my own healing, my therapy, the work that I do to drive social change, all of those things have enabled me to create a narrative, which I think you're right, is actually quite unusual. Every time I talk, people say, I really relate to that. Yeah. But... I don't think that that narrative exists because, as you say, the British culture has the most spectacular way of being selective about what they remember mm. from the past. So when you talk about Britain and when you learn about British history, you never learn about colonisation. They don't teach it in schools. No, they don't. And, and don't get me wrong, I think they touch on it like so briefly, <laughs> so briefly. But what they don't do is actually talk about what it meant. Yeah. They don't talk about the famines that killed yeah. millions of people. They don't talk about the trillions and trillions of dollars of wealth yeah. that was looted from countries that were colonized. They talk about the fact that we gave we gave India cricket and the railways. I've, I can't tell you how many times I've actually heard people say it's that. It's so galling in some ways, isn't it, that the railways is a great example. The British often say we gave India the railways, or history says that, sorry. The victors yeah. who wrote history say we gave India the railways. What they don't say is that it was a means to help them transport goods around and get them out of the country. They don't say that bit. They say, we left India with this wonderful railway system, but actually it was for their own gain. But they also don't say who built the railways and how they were treated while they were building them. Exactly. And my grandfather, who was, who was uprooted into indentured servitude in Tanzania, went for the railways. So the term indentured servitude, I just touch on it for just a second. It's kind of misunderstood because it's you know, people see it as in, oh, they were given job opportunities in another country. They were given a job opportunity when they lived in a country that had no opportunity and you were living in complete poverty and you were literally not able to provide for your family. Yeah. So these opportunities weren't an option. They were the only choice that people had. So yeah, yeah, people went voluntarily because they had no choice. And when they got there, what they were promised didn't materialize they were mm. living in poor conditions they were worked too much they weren't paid fairly and so you know the we talk about how the British played a role in abolishing slavery we don't talk about the hundred years after the abolishment of slavery and then all of the you, if you look at South Asian heritage you'll find it all over the Caribbean you, and not just South Asian obviously the slave trade in itself was so significant but you will find indentured servitude 
in the sugar plantations in the Caribbean, all over Southeast Asia, in East Africa, because suddenly they didn't have labor anymore or free labor anymore. Yeah. And that's so something that I learned, I think, from Eugene Ellis's book, The Race Conversation, was that not only were they having, I don't even know how I want to phrase this, enticing people from South Asia to come to colonies and colonized spaces in Africa and the Caribbean, they were then weaponizing that against the locals. And that's something that's never talked about, actually. So, you know, we talk about, and I, I want to say this with so much respect and sympathy, but we talk about the expulsion of South Asians from Uganda mm. with Idi Amin, which was one of, you know, one of the, the worst refugee crises in, the, in that moment. Mm-hmm. But what we don't talk about is the hierarchy that the British created as a result of colonizing yeah. these countries. Yeah. So what they basically did by taking South Asians from India and putting them in East Africa is to say, the African local people aren't good enough. We mm-hmm. need hardworking, loyal, reliable, and I'm going to use the term again, obedient migrants yeah. to come over and to do this work. And by doing so, they created a hierarchy where the natives of the country were at the bottom of the pile, followed then by South Asians, and then probably a few more before you get to the British at the top. What you do with that is you leave behind that. And so when even after a lot of East African countries were were made independent or fought for their independence, you're still left behind with large South Asian communities. And there was a point in time where 80 or 90% of Ugandan business was owned by South Asians. And Idi Amin, for the most hideous man that he was, the point he was making is we want our country back. Mm. And I don't, and I'm, I, I stress again, I have family members who were expelled from Uganda. I want to be very sympathetic to the fact that no one deserved that. But yeah. you have to look at the, the actual causal part of this story, yeah. which is that they were put into a country in a hierarchy which caused yeah. an imbalance in in society and that in itself was the problem. Yeah, and I this is something that I'm learning more and more about and I'm going to be honest, I've lived in the UK for 6 years now and you do have to seek this information out to learn it. Mm. It is not and let this be a lesson for all the American listeners. This is what happens when you erase all of your flaws from your education. And this is an issue we're facing in the United States at the moment where, you know, there are certain states that are editing history. And when we do that, this is Mm -hmm. this is what happens. So, yeah, just just a sort of warning label. And I want to I want to make sure that (laughs) uh, I could sit and listen to you talk about lessons of (laughs) colonialism all day. But I want to make sure we're leaving space for you and for all the amazing work you're doing. And so to kind of bring it back to you, knowing this history and knowing the struggle that your family had both in their native countries and here, what is it like for you as an Indian British woman having both of these parts of your history kind of collide in the place where you live? I love this question and it's so big and far reaching. So if I just flip back then, so I grew up so desperate to be British and I grew up kind of pushing distancing myself and pushing away from my cultural heritage and what that meant in my teenage years when you know when there's the fighting between your two identities and then there's Mm -hmm. teenage hormones and all of a sudden everything at that point collided where I was like I'm choosing one way and I chose to be British I chose to not recognize Mm -hmm. my Indian heritage and I did that for quite a while And I'm really sad about it because what it meant is that I avoided being in the kitchen with my mum because I didn't want my clothes to smell of garlic and onions. Mm. It meant that I avoided spending time with my family and going to cultural events because I didn't want to look different and be different. I wanted to be doing the same thing that all the other kids were doing at 13, 14, which was so ridiculously reckless if Mm. I think about it in hindsight. But that's what I felt I needed to do to fit in. And so... This carried on and actually I firmly, and I, if I could actually visualize for you, I turned my back on my identity and I'm, I feel a loss of that. I, feel, I still feel, I feel grief because I missed out on so much of that. It was really when, so there's a couple of like poignant moments. One is the discovery 
So I've watched Bollywood films from the moment I was born, I think. And so like Bollywood was a huge thing in my life. But then I discovered some really amazing musicians. I'll just name a few. So yeah. the first, yeah, the first was Nusrat Fadeli Khan, who is one of the greatest icons of Kowali music in South Asia, which then led me on to a couple of British Indians. So the late 90s, early noughties, there was this kind of Asian underground scene. And I discovered the likes of Nitin Sawney, Talvin Singh, Anushka Shankar, the Asian Dub Foundation, Corner Shop. And they're not mainstream. They probably are recognisable. I actually, in fact, went to see Talvin Singh last night in Brighton, which was like the biggest throwback to my early 20s. It was just absolutely <laughs> spectacular. But these are British Indians who have found a way to combine in the most explosive way their British and Indian identities. And by all of these musicians that I mentioned do it so beautifully that it made me start to question my feeling that I had to be one or the mm. other. And so music was that really big first part of that kind of cultural reawakening for me. It was that, hey, you guys look super happy and cool and you're British and you're Indian and maybe I can start to think about being both. And then... Mm. As if by magic, because that's how life works. At the age of 22, I was offered a work assignment. So I worked for American Express in Brighton for 18 years. And in the early, early stages of my career, I was offered the opportunity to go and train a group of people in a call centre out in Mumbai. And I was supposed to go for three months. And I came back 18 months later. Mm. And in that 18 months... <laughs> This is, I love these stories. I was supposed to be here for three months, ended up, this, I was only supposed to live abroad for a couple of years. It's been 10. It's <laughs> I was that, and I think this, this, if we go back to what I said at the beginning, so desperate to fit in, to belong, to please, to make people happy in a work environment, I was the dream. I literally said yes to everything mm -hmm. and I jumped higher than anybody ever expected mm -hmm. me to. And that was the entirety of my career actually. But in that period when I was in India, for the first time in my life, I'm surrounded by people that all look the same as me. That, and India is not what my parents had portrayed it to me as. So remember my, my subservient, obedient parents who had come out of colonial kind of upbringings themselves when they came to this country, they were like heads down, don't don't draw attention to yourself. Mm. So even when we faced racism, they said, no, no, just ignore it. And so they didn't validate those moments. And so we kind of started to believe those feelings. But when I went to India, all of a sudden, I'm like nightclubbing in Mumbai on a ah. Saturday night. And life is so different to anything I had imagined. But there's this, my love for Indian music, being in Mumbai for 18 months and living the dream, really, because at 22, to have an experience of like being in a five-star hotel and running a call center was pretty epic. And it really, it changed something inside me. And I can see it as one of the most pivotal moments of my youth. And I call it my youth because it was a really poignant moment in my early adulthood where I realized that I didn't have to choose and I wasn't torn between two things and that it was up to me to define what that meant for me. And you can only imagine what my, so just coming back to food for just two seconds, can you imagine oh my God. what India, being in India was like? Like, I know, and it's like I'd eaten so many cool things through my childhood because my mum had a passion for cooking. And so, so India's like, India is made up of many states and each state is like a country. And by that, I mean, you can go to Gujarat and have a type of cuisine. Yeah. You can go to Kerala and it's go have another type of cuisine, but it's quite literally yeah. as different as being French to Italian to Spanish to German, completely different ingredients. Yeah. Again, very, very focused on what's grown in the state. And so the, the, the food's developed that way. And so being in Mumbai, which is like a melting pot of different cultures and different cuisines, mm. I had this opportunity to just try so many new things. I developed a full-blown addiction to Kathy Rolls, which is the, the Indian kebab, basically. Yeah. I would eat a couple of them every night, yes. I know. And yeah, it was when I started to 
pull all of the known parts of me that were in me anyway mm. and actually bring them to the surface. And so, yeah, food, music, travel. I just had the most spectacular 18 months. And so when I actually came back to the UK, I was like, I'm not the same anymore. I'm a different person and I'm going to treat the next chapter completely differently. So tell me then a little bit, you've come back as this new person and I guess maybe how does that person become the person you are today? It sounds really big and, and noble what I've just shared with you, but obviously the journey doesn't stop well, at the age of 22, does it? Because we all unwind and we go through different stages. And so for me, the next kind of really that I guess when I came back, I surrounded myself with people who loved all parts of me. And so all of the friends that I had at that point in my life loved my Indian heritage. Mm. And suddenly I'm surrounded by people who want to celebrate who I am. When I was 27, I sadly lost my father. And that was, without hesitation, one of the hardest moments. My father was an alcoholic and he died mm. of alcoholism. And his life was incredibly sad and tragic we had an incredibly complex relationship. It took for him to pass for me to then start looking at his story. Mm. And I didn't. So, I, you know, at this point, I'm 27 years old. I'm proud of being Indian. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I found a way to be comfortable with being British. But I don't know anything. I don't know any of the actual history. And so a couple of years after he passed away, I actually raised money by walking the South Downs Way. And for our American listeners, we have a national park that runs through the area of the country that we live. It's 100 miles, the walk. And so I walked 100 miles. It's really beautiful. It's stunning. It's the Windows XP background you all remember from the early 2000s. <laughs> That's like, I actually, I think that is where they shot it is in the South Downs somewhere. That doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I looked it up because I was like, there's no way. Okay, so you raised a lot of money walking the South Downs way. Yeah, I raised money and I went to Tanzania. And so I didn't want to go as a tourist. I wanted to go to his birth town. I wanted to walk the streets. I wanted to see where he lived and where he was born. And obviously, Tanzania gained its independence in the 70s. So a lot, a lot has changed since those colonial times. When I went in, I think it was in 2011, I took this money. I had contacted and reached out to some local NGOs and I basically went and stayed with families and I taught English and I worked in an orphanage. I did some really amazing things over this four-week period. But the most important thing that I did is I have a folder of all of my dad's and my granddad's paperwork, which basically talk about dates when they move from one place to the mm. other, the addresses that they were at. I had like, but I'd never really looked at it. It was just all in a box somewhere. And so I took this box with me and I sat every day, timelining, drawing things out, or going to places, talking to people. And of course, you know, there's no magical story here. There's no history left. There's no history of my family left there just to walk the street that they walked. Mm. It made me then it awakened something in me. And it's been since then, really, that I've started to really deep dive and explore into the stories and the history that has been so conveniently erased by the country that I live in. Yeah. And so it was around that time that I learned the term indentured servitude. It was around that time that I learned what it meant to have gone to East Africa to work. And so I actually... <laughs> would say that through this learning, I developed a, a resistance, an anger, mm -hmm. frustration. And it's really hard to find peace when two parts of you are really at conflict within another. Ooh. Because I understand the privilege that I have being mm. born in this country. I get it. But I also see the irony that I am born into the country that took away the history of my own. Yeah. And it's very, very hard to make peace with those two things. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I guess a bit, a bit ragey, a bit angry, yeah. really debate. I mean, you can imagine I'm like learning new things. I'm like, you know, I'm going to fast forward because like I'm now in my 30s living life, distracted by all the wonderful things that we have going on. I had a big career, really like, I had a, a big job at American Express, which meant I traveled a lot. I worked a lot of hours. And so there's not a lot of time for this, but I think it all comes to a head in 2020 when the whole world stopped. What? George Floyd's murder 
had such a profound impact on me. Mm-hmm. It's not my story. It doesn't, it's a completely different context, but I dare you to find a single person of color who yeah. didn't relive their trauma. For kind of context for American listeners, it was the first, I think it was the first murder of a black person by police in the United States that was really, really felt in the UK. It was the first time I saw protests specifically as a result of of that. And we've mentioned in previous episodes that people of color in the UK face the same issues as people in the US. The police have fewer guns, but it doesn't mean that they're any nicer. So just wanted to kind of throw that in there. Yeah, so I think George Floyd, it, it was a big deal in the UK. It was a huge deal. And I think the reason why we probably felt it more than ever is because we had nothing else. Like we were in these strange moments where the world was slow and had stopped and we had time to reflect and think. And for me, it meant, I mean, quite literally an outpouring Mm. of grief, of hurt, of pain. I have with no exaggeration experienced hundreds of moments Mm -hmm. of racism, othering, and I have ignored them. I've been an obedient migrant mm. and I've kept my head down and I've done what my parents taught me to do, which is not to give it space because I believed by giving it space, I would be othering myself. Oof. I know. I bought into what was being said to me is that I, you're you're different. You're different. You don't belong and you're different. And I, I think somewhere really deep inside me, I bought into that. And so when, you know, when we're in lockdown and George Floyd was murdered and it's everything that you see, all of a sudden I'm like, I'm physically feeling pain Mm. that I had never felt before. And so I've talked to you all the way through to kind of my mid-30s now, but in all of that time, I have never confronted a racist. I have never pulled anyone up for saying something to me. I have done the exact opposite. I have turned the other way and I've walked away because I believed what they were saying to me and I didn't even realise it until this moment. Mm. So 2020 was a really big year and it kind of ignited something inside me it made me realize that this really incredible 18-year career in big business gave me some really special skills and experiences that I couldn't ignore and so whilst it was so hedonistic to chase a career in the food industry all of a sudden the food industry is on its knees and the world is burning and so I found myself wanting a change and What that's meant in the last couple of years is that I have found a way to be useful in driving social change. And so I work for I work for three charities, all of whom are essentially making the lives of people who migrate easier. And that's the easiest way I can summarize it, because somebody said to me the other day, what's your purpose? What's your purpose, Neha? And without even missing a beat, I responded, I want to improve the lives of people that migrate. And that's it. Love that. I found a purpose. And so two of the charities that I support, support refugees and asylum seekers who are struggling with the incredibly divisive and shitty immigration system that we have in this country. So bad. So bad. So I moved here. I'm a white American. I moved here with literally all the privilege, right? I had a company that was sponsoring my work permit that was paying for the lawyers to do all of my paperwork that was sorting everything out for me. And it was still a fantastically difficult process. And I cannot imagine Mm. going through that. And I, you know, I was making money at the time. I had income. I had a place to live. I had a partner who was here, right? Even with one less privilege, it would have been way more difficult. And going through that with none Mm. of the privilege I can't imagine. And there were multiple times during my sort of moving to the UK where I, you know, I have to go into these places to get, you know, whatever they have to look at my passport and da, da, da. And I got moved to the front of the line every single time. And I said to one of the women when I got in, you know, I got moved to the front of the line and she she was a black woman. And I said, "I, I feel really uncomfortable about the fact that I've been moved to the front of the line. And she goes, you're not the first person who's been moved to the front of the line, but you're the first person who's pointed it out. And she just kind of like pointed me in the direction of the manager to complain to. But it's pretty clear that that's a standard 
procedure. I genuinely don't believe, and it's it comes down to governments, right? And I don't want to get too political here, but uh, knock yourself the out. Current do- <laughs> <Go for it. laughs> the current government has created one of the most toxic, divisive yeah. cultures that I have ever seen. The rhetoric that they use refers to migrants as cockroaches and swarms. And the minute you take away the human side of a person, you're basically, you're creating hatred, you're creating racism. And so let's not hide behind anything here. Racism is created by these political moments of propaganda. It's all about what they want us to look at rather than what they don't want us to look at. So one of the charities that I work with works with the 16 to 24 year old kind of group of refugees and asylum seekers who are treated so appallingly. And there's a real kind of challenge with age disputes where the government will try and tell them that they are older so that they can treat them as an adult rather than a child. Another organization is kind of more social befriending, language skills, digital inclusion, trying to get them devices so they can actually connect to the world. Mm. And then the last charity that I work for supports survivors of human trafficking, modern day slavery, and it's a women's charity. So really, really important to kind of differentiate that, you know, gender and race, both are Mm -hmm. things that are incredibly important to me. So two years ago, I just, I had a moment where I thought, cooking food for people isn't enough Mm. and so I literally turned my attention away from it it was easy to do that in lockdown Mm -hmm. because there wasn't much happening anyway I had a few little baby projects going on here and there I was doing cookery classes on zoom I wrote a little cookery book during like covid but I couldn't find a way to connect with people but I did Mm. find a way to be useful and all of a sudden that being useful became more important than feeding people now I want to also just caveat that obviously the world's opened back up again and I've found a way to now to use food as a way to educate people about our history. And so, you know, just little examples. I had a supper club recently in Brighton and, you know, there's 28 people all sitting around and I'm not just there to feed people. I'm there to share stories about what these dishes mean to me, where they come from, what the ingredients, even if you look at dishes, you can say like famous dishes of India only exist because the Portuguese brought ingredients to them. You know, I can sit here and be really negative about the effects of like colonization, but we have to also acknowledge that the food that we know and love today exists because of that. Mm. And, you know, sadly, most people of color who talk about race and colonization come across as being angry. That's not, that's not going to work. I have come across some of the most brilliant human beings I saw David Olashoga last week at a talk in Brighton and he is one of the most compelling historians that I've come across in my time and his whole remit is to retell the history of mm-hmm. this country there's another guy called Satnam Sangera who's doing exactly the same thing and what I love about both of them is they're not using anger they're not using resentment they found a way to be charming and compelling and to belong and using that as a platform has inspired me to think that actually food is my platform and so I'm doing a fundraiser next month to raise money for a migrant fund in Brighton and again I'm not just serving food to people I'm talking to people about what these dishes mean and where they come from and what the origins of those ingredients are because that in itself is a way to learn history so I heard you and you said that anger is not going to work but I think anger is a really good motivator and it sounds it's the like fuel, right yeah I, f- I feel it literally filling up and then I'm finding a way to use it and I yeah I almost feel like my f- tank is full with the fuel that anger creates. Mm. And then I use that fuel to do good. And I think that for me, and it's my story and my, my one story is there's obviously many, many stories, but for me, I want to be a positive agent for change. The fragility that I come across when I talk about race is even when I'm the nicest version of myself, Mm. the fragility that I come across when I pull people up for saying things that are inappropriate or for being offensive people will become really defensive and they'll say, I didn't mean it that way. And I'm like, just because you're nice and kind and polite doesn't mean that that's not how it lands with the person that receives it. Mm. And that's the most important thing with racism, isn't it? Is it's not about the person saying it, it's about the person that's receiving it. And actually, I feel othered just by people 
feeling comfortable to use language in front of me that I don't think they should. Yeah, because it invites that like, oh, you're not like the rest of them or you're not. Yeah, it, it, which is incredibly problematic. Yeah, exactly that. It's, um, it's hard to stay firm to that, whatever your idea is of your identity. When you talk about African-Americans or Chinese-Americans, the first word is their cultural heritage. The second word is where they live. Think about it in British terms. They say British Indian, British African, British, but it's always British first. Mm. And I am finding that really problematic. And so I've actually started, I'm going to be annoying on every form that I have to fill in. I'm going to put other and then I'm going to write, I'm an Indian British. Mm. Yeah, it's funny because you were the first person who ever pointed that out to me. I've never, I mean, obviously I've seen forms in both countries, but it never really clicked with me because in the UK, I just scroll all the way to the bottom to the category that says white other <laughs> because there's, there's there's white what is it it's like white irish white british white european and then white other which i think is just mm. such a funny like <laughs> i don't know why it makes me laugh every time but it does <laughs> okay so tell us what is giving you life with the work you're doing right now i think that when you understand your history and when you understand your story, it creates a restlessness and it's that restlessness that creates purpose. And it's taken me a really long time to get to this moment mm. where I can say that to you. Yeah. Because along the way, I've gone one way, I've gone the other, I've done a bit. I mean, and this is the first time in my life where I think I've truly understand what I'm supposed to do with this information. Mm. And just that improving the lives of people that migrate that makes me feel proud of myself yeah. it makes me feel proud to be Indian it also is helping me to find pride in being British mm. because there has to be a change I genuinely believe that if we don't recognize the history and where we came from we can't change the future we can't create a future that we're proud of and so that question is for me very simple I owe it to my people to be part of creating a future that's different and through food isn't that a magical way <laughs> uh, listen if anyone is ever in brighton and has the chance this woman's food i cannot and the way she introduces it with such passion and you talk about the history and you talk about why why this dish why these ingredients and the history comes through and you can taste the love in the food which is like it's my my mom's love language is food yeah. and it, it turns out so is mine <laughs> yeah well listen that's it's one of mine too one of my favorite moments so neha and i met last year through a good friend of ours and I immediately, when I heard her passion for food, I was like, you have to come to my Thanksgiving. And recognizing the full problematic history of Thanksgiving, it's a day that I co-opt as I just cook for a bunch of people and feed a bunch of people and make a bunch of uncomfortable British people say what they're thankful for. And it's the highlight of my year. And... <laughs> I immediately knew that Neha needed to be at my Thanksgiving. It's a food exchange, right? And so I'm it's it's been really special to hear your history and to be able to share that love with you and for us to be able to connect that way. And so with the last couple of minutes, the podcast is called Conversations with a Wounded Healer. And I'm curious how you do or do not resonate with that term. When I first heard it, it took me a while to kind of find a connection with it. But actually, the way I interpret the term wounded healer is somebody who's using their experience to do good, to do better. Mm. And for me, I'm taking my the generational trauma that exists within the culture of my people. I'm taking my own experiences of being a Gujarati girl growing up in the UK in the 80s. I'm taking all the complexities of uncovering and unpicking who I am and what that means and my identity. And I'm using that, all of that, to do good through food, through the work that I do with charities. It feels to me, it's a term that actually captures the work that so many people do mm. that have been through journeys of their own and are using those journeys to, to create a better society. Mm, I love that. 
And where can people find you? On the socials. I married a British guy whose surname's Hampton, which makes me incredibly unique. If you type in Neha Hampton, you will see a whole plethora of things, including my website, my social media. But I actually dropped Patel when I first got married. And two years ago, I put it back in again. And I think listening to this podcast, you'll understand why it was so important to do so. So all of my social handles are Neha Patel Hampton. But as I say, if that's too much, then Neha Hampton and you'll find me. Your full name is never too much. And we'll have links to all of your places in the show notes. Neha, thank you so much for joining today. It's been so nice to talk to you and share your story with our audience. I've absolutely loved talking to you as always. Thanks to our guest for an amazing conversation today. To find out more about today's guest, you can visit www.headheartbiztherapy.com slash podcast. You can find Sarah at at headheartbiztherapy on Facebook and Instagram. And you can find Anne at at spareroomwellness or spareroomwellness.com. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.